read at the beginning of the service, uh, the chapter 1 of Psalms, I want us to turn to a companion a portion of Scripture in Joshua chapter 1, which sounds very much like the portion that we read in <clears throat> Psalm 1. You know, Joshua is the successor of Moses and has been given the command, the directions from the Lord to go and possess the land. He's leading God's people into finally at last, after years of wandering and disobedience, into the land of promise. And he tells him there, the Lord is speaking here to Joshua in verse 6 of chapter 1, be strong and of a good courage. The Lord never commands us to do something that is not possible to do. Would you keep that in mind? He tells him, you be strong. These are things that Joshua is to lay hold on and to use the resources that God has given him. Be strong and of a good courage, for unto this people shalt thou divide for an inheritance the land which I swear unto their fathers to give them. There is a condition here, the strength. God promises to use Joshua in an amazing way. But what is Joshua's part? Only be thou strong. He repeats that. Where does this strength come from? Is it something that's worked up emotionally, something that's conjured up? Of course not. Be thou strong and very courageous, that thou mayest observe to do according to all the law, which Moses, my servant, commanded thee. Turn not from it to the right hand or to the left. Don't be distracted in this goal, that thou mayest prosper whithersoever thou goest. This prosperity, this spiritual prosperity that God uh, is going to give to Joshua and wants for his people is conditional. What does he say here? This book of the law that he's referred to shall not depart out of thy mouth, but thou shalt meditate therein day and night. That thou mayest observe to do according to all that is written therein, for then thou shalt make thy way prosperous, and then thou shalt have good success. The land of Canaan was inhabited by fierce and warlike people walled cities against anybody who would attempt to intrude. It was an awesome task that the Lord had given Joshua and his people. The children of Israel were not a warlike people. They were not adept in the methods of war like the inhabitants of the land. They were to go in and possess the land. They were to take these walled cities and vineyards and fields and possess them as their own. There were giants in the land. There were all kinds of enemies and fearful things there. And yet they were tell, commanded here in, through Joshua, be strong and courageous and meditate upon my word. So this strength that God is promising to his people comes directly from his word. The New Testament parallel, our Canaan, is the Christian life. A life filled with giants and problems, giants of problems, mountains that need to be moved, mountains of unbeliefs and fears and uh, habits and fortresses that need to be torn down. Canaan is not heaven for the Christian. Our Canaan is this Christian life. It is God's will for us. It is all that he's told us to do. And so while they were inhabiting a literal place and land, we are to go forward in sanctification and seize the the, the promises that God has given to us and to bring down these uh, fortresses and, and drive away these giants and to slay the sins that would so easily beset us. What is the secret? If you've read any biographies of Christians of the past, the Puritans, our forebears, those who've lived before, what would be the marked difference between God's people in years ago 
and those who profess to know him today. In God's battle for the mind, David Saxton has written, Imagine being invited to a private dinner hosted by a friend who works as a chef in a five-star restaurant. This person is renowned for cooking meals that are nutritious, healthy, delightful, and satisfying. You can hardly wait for the day to arrive. Finally, it comes, and from the moment you step in the front door, you are embraced by the tantalizing smells. As the host seats you, the colors, the arrangement of the food on various dishes are a feast for the eyes. Your friend has thoughtfully chosen your favorite foods. However, just as you sink your fork into the first bite and raise it to your lips, your phone chirps like a cuckoo clock gone mad. The strident voice on the line is your boss. And before he finishes his first sentence, you know that you will never eat the delicacy set before you. With a rumbling stomach and a tight smile, you make your excuses and head out the door. You saw the food and smelled it, but never chewed it. You never digested it or benefited from it. That is the Christian life without meditation. All over the world, he writes, people go to hear the preaching of the word on the Lord's day. Those who are serious about spiritual growth spend time regularly reading the Bible. However, though they hear and read the word too often, they do not chew or digest it. Before their time and the word is gone, the world is calling. And they rush off after the cares and the riches and the pleasures of this life. As a result, though they can perhaps say something about what the word has said They have neither enjoyed the word in the power of the spirit nor incorporated it deeply into their lives. They have not meditated on the scriptures. Another way of expressing meditation is calling it the doctrine of Christian thinking. Philippians 4 gives us in that classic outline of scripture what we're to think about. Be careful for nothing but in everything by prayer and supplication With thanksgiving, let your request be made known unto God. And the peace of God, which passes all understanding, shall keep your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. Finally, my brethren, whatsoever things are true, honest, just, pure, lovely, good, of good report, if there be any virtue or praise, think, meditate on these things. Well, that excludes a whole lot of what comes into our hearts and minds and and across our paths daily, doesn't it? And yet this is what the scripture tells us is to preoccupy and fill our hearts and minds. In 2 Corinthians 10 verse 3, the scripture says we walk in the flesh. That's true. We're in this world. We're here. But though we walk in this flesh, we do not war after the flesh. The weapons of our warfare are not fleshly. They're not carnal, but mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds, casting down imaginations. How do we do that? And every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God and bringing into captivity every thought, not some of our thoughts, not here and there, not just on Sunday morning or Wednesday evening, bringing every thought to the obedience of Christ and having in a readiness to revenge all disobedience, because where does sin begin? Where does disobedience begin? In the thoughts, when your obedience is fulfilled. Saxon goes on to describe meditation as thinking personally, practically, seriously, and earnestly 
on how the truth of God's word should look in life. Edward Callamy wrote many years ago, dwelling upon the mercies we receive and chewing upon the promises. When a believer meditates something that is so rare and so foreign to, to most of us in this culture today, when, when we meditate, we fill our thinking, we fill our mind with truth so that our lives are controlled by the mind of Christ. When Paul is saying, think on these things, this is the mind of Christ. This is how God, in fact, in the beginning of that letter, he says, let this mind be in you, this thinking, this attitude. That is governed by truth. It is governed by the word of God that's been given to us. The way Christ thinks about things, seeing things from his perspective. Sadly, most of us think of meditation as a product of some Eastern religion our teaching, and what comes to mind when I say that word meditation is, is a false meditation, is something that Satan has conjured up that's opposite of what the Scripture is teaching. What comes to mind is someone sitting in the lotus position on a mat on the floor somewhere consciously emptying their minds uh, out. And, that, and Christian meditation is the opposite. It's not emptying our minds, but f- focusing specifically and purposefully on the doctrines of the Word of God. Biblical meditation is not emptying the mind at all, but filling the mind with biblical truth, what God has revealed to us in His Word. It is more than just intellectually agreeing with or believing certain truths. The God of meditation, or the good of meditation, or the goal of it, the end of meditation is for the believer to live out in our daily attitudes and our action what we know to be as, as truth. It will affect our daily walk, our work, our life. It will change our thinking to right patterns and and principles and behaviors and and godly decision-making. The Bible writers knew these truths and they practiced them. We see in Isaiah chapter 26 and verse 3, Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on thee, fixed, glued on thee, because he trusteth in thee. Trust ye in the Lord forever, for in the Lord Jehovah is everlasting strength. There's much in the daily round of life for the average believer to unsettle us. From driving through traffic to the the demands of the day of work or at home, uh, to set us on a course of wrong thinking, of destructive thinking, or or thinking that would be harmful to our, our walk in harmony with the Lord. God's people, it seems, use almost anything but meditation upon his word to combat these problems. The temptations, the fiery darts that Satan sends our way, the darts of depression and doubt and worry. We may resort to hobbies or social media, all kinds of media and entertainment, something to fill the mind and and the time and to give us something to think about or to do, or even uh, drugs or alcohol, numbing, ear-piercing music or shopping or sports or something to fill the void of our minds. And while some of those things are not wrong in and of themselves, to use those in place to, 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 as a substitute for what God has given to us in his word will, will be starvation to the soul and will surely reap destruction in the believer's life. To put something there that's not supposed to be there or used in the wrong way is a perversion. So much bombards us moment by moment. Our senses, sight, eyes, Hearing, we are inundated with uh, information and stimulus. 
consciously meditating upon God's word helps us to be stayed, as Isaiah says, or fixed or focused upon the Lord. William Bates wrote, There is great inconsistency in the thoughts of men, but meditation chains and fastens them to a spiritual, a sp- spiritual object. Edmund Smith says, Meditation will lead to a calmness and disposition, a serenity of mind and a certainty about the ways of God. Smith also noted that former generations viewed meditation as a godly person's greatest need. If you were to ask the average Christian today what the believer's greatest need is, do you think they would have meditation even on the list, let alone at the top of the list? He says it's a a Christian's greatest need, especially during times of trial or pain, where worries would tend to predominate our thinking instead of the truths of God's word. Thomas Watson wrote, A Christian enters into meditation as a man enters into the hospital, that he may be healed. Meditation heals the soul of its deadness and its earthiness. Meditating on the the teachings of the Bible is like medicine to the inner man. We have an outer man that we give vitamins to and nutrition to and we seek medical care for, but the inner man is almost left to itself. After salvation, if we do not use the balm of God's words and the means of grace that he's given to us, to treat the woes that will come to the inner man. God always uses the medicine-like healing of his word. What brought us peace? What brought us salvation? What brought peace to a troubled mind of of an eternity of separation from God and removed the weight and the guilt of our sin? It was the word of God. What will continue to do that and stabilize us and to equip us to give us lasting encouragement and healing? Yes, the inner man needs healing just like the outer man does. Richard Sibbs, another Puritan writer, says, This meditation is a serious act of the Spirit in the inwards of the soul, whose object is spiritual, whose affection is a provoked appetite to practice holy things, a kindling in us of the love of God, a zeal toward His truth, a healing for our benumbed hearts. The Holy Spirit takes these truths that we've heard, or that we've read, or that we've been taught, or that we've memorized, as we ponder them and think about them and fix our minds on them, the Holy Spirit takes these truths that we deeply ponder and He relieves our hearts. What chases away that doubt, or that fear, or that worry? He calms our frazzled minds, filled with darting fears and worries, and restores order and hope within our souls and reminds us of what God has promised, that he is in control, that he is sovereign. Though the foundations be destroyed, our God is sovereign. He will see us safely home. Uh, Yea, though I go through the valley of the shadow of death, thou art with me. That's a promise. We think about that. Don't you think that teaching becomes especially true to the soul as you enter in the twilight years and are nearing the shore? Though I go through the valley of the shadow of death, thou art with me. And he tells us, I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Just as the fiery darts of the wicked one comes, is it true? Are you saved? Will he take you home? What if you've not been uh, truly repentant? All those fiery darts that the wicked one gives, especially as the outer man is perishing. The inner man, if the inner man has not been built up, what what will the inner man have to draw on when they can no longer read or attend the means of grace or come to the house of God? must 
enter within the sanctuary within and have his mind and heart stayed upon Jehovah. Thomas Hooker defined meditation as a serious intention of the mind whereby we come to search out the truth and settle it effectively, effectually upon the heart. This is serious business. This is no just a mere uh, tasting or flittering from here to there. It is taking time to think deeply and long and seriously about the truths of God's word. After a physical trauma or a severe injury or a major surgery, the doctor will often prescribe a, a period of bed rest or specific things that can be or cannot be done. But rest for the body is part of the, the healing of, of the, the, the wound or the, the injury or the trauma. And this parallel is to the spiritual realm is meditation on a spiritual biblical truth to heal the trauma or the sickness of the soul, which is just as real, just as damaging as a trauma or sickness to the outer man. Why is it that we, we treat it as if it's not there? All of us know those deeply felt problems and, and uh, worries and sicknesses and all those things that affect the soul are real and they must be attended to. Richard Baxter, the noted Puritan preacher and writer, went through many personal painful experiences in his life. And one thing of reading Christian biographies, you see that these people went through real uh, hard times. And some of them are very frank about it. No one more frank than Charles Spurgeon about his horrible depression that he dealt with his entire life in ministry. His success, his world-renowned fame did nothing to chase away the depression that he dealt with. And uh, he often spoke of it, and the cure for it was, of course, the Word of God and, and meditation upon it. Baxter called it the habit of heavenly meditation. And Saxon writes of Baxter, he was able to maintain wonderful equanimity of mind through his trials and sufferings, even though they were exceedingly uh, severe. And he notes that the streams of God's words heal just as effectively today as they did in Baxter's time. The Word of God hasn't changed, has it? It is still the same Word that Joshua was told to meditate upon and that Paul gave to the Philippian believers. What are the benefits, we might ask, or the blessings from meditating on God's Word? We tried just a bit to define it and tell you what it is. What are the benefits from it? We've already alluded to some of them. There is the erroneous teaching in theology which says that your words and your thoughts can produce wealth or healing or whatever you want, better circumstances, better job, whatever, if it emphasizes the power of your words. And they would, might would quote uh, some teaching like our Lord's words in Matthew 21, verse 21, when Jesus answered and said to them, Verily I say unto you, if you have faith and you doubt not, you shall not only do this which is done to the fig tree, as he just cursed the fig tree, but also if you shall say to this mountain, Be thou removed, be thou cast into the sea, it shall be done. And whatsoever things you ask in prayer, believing you shall receive it. They will quote that verse and say, whatever the power of your word, you can say it, and it was power to do it. But, of course, Jesus is teaching on believing prayer. And that if we pray according to his will, he can move mountains of problems, mountains that we could never move uh, by effort in our own strength. Jesus' pro uh, promises to answer prayer are based upon God's word and never are contrary to it. And never, as James tells us, just to consume upon our own lust. Not for some circus sideshow antics of moving a mountain or levitating something. Nothing can be further from the truth. 
But Jesus promises to answer prayer. That kind of prayer can move mountains of problems, and we all know what that's like. But biblical meditation accomplishes several things when when earnestly and regularly practiced by the believer. Well, one thing, it matures us. It moves us from, from the milk of the word, which is important. We should always have the desire of the word like a baby desires its milk. Sometimes I think people get the idea that that's just a stage in the believer's life, the sincere milk of the word, and then a mature believer would go on to strong meat. While that is true, we should never lose the, the thirst of God's word as a baby has for its mother's milk. That never goes away. Now, what we feed upon will advance, but all, is any part of God's word not important? Could we call any of it milk or, or something that's, that's not true and deep and eternal from God? And so uh, while the amount of doctrine that a new believer may can handle or understand, that, that's only changed by thinking about it and being exposed to it and reading it and hearing it preached and taught and pondering it in the heart and mind. Then the appetite for the deeper things of God uh, is developed. Well, it, it accomplishes spiritual maturity. And we're all, we have never, uh, none of us reach a place of complete maturity. Just when we think we have, some problem will come, some fiery dart, some slight from someone will come and just knock us off course. And we think, well, I thought I was farther along in grace than that. I thought I was a better Christian than that. Sometimes we we get overwhelmed with a flood of doubt or fear or worry or bitterness or hurt feelings or whatever the situation may be that really causes uh, uh, us to be stunted in our spiritual growth. What is the remedy? Of course, confession and repenting of it. But what will change those thought patterns? What gets us to thinking ourselves in the right way? We have that graphic story of David when his men at Ziglag and his families were all taken captive, the wives and children. When they came back home, there was no one there. For all they knew, they'd all been uh, massacred. They didn't know where they were. The Philistines had taken them. And the men were actually gathering up stones to stone David. In one of the most profound verses, the Bible tells us that David did what? Worry and fret and have a nervous breakdown? No, David encouraged himself in the Lord. Now, that's no spontaneous, uh, quick thing. He began to think about what God had promised to him. God, I don't know exactly what David thought. We know it was based on God's word. Had God not promised him that he was going to be king one day? Well, if they stoned him, he certainly couldn't be king, could he? So he had to remind himself, God's promises are bigger than these present circumstances. These men cannot do this. My life cannot end. Uh, God is in charge. And he began to encourage himself in the Lord at the worst possible time, at a time of death, at a time when a mob was about to seize and take him. David began, and I think, no doubt, can't surmise too much here. He maybe even started quoting some of those promises aloud. Something quelled the men. Something caused them to stop their, their efforts of stoning him. And we know it was ultimately the Lord. But David encouraged himself in the Lord. That's what we're to do too. How do we do that? Well, one of the ways is to meditate upon God's word. Meditation matures us spiritually. You know... Part of God's uh, ministering to Paul with his thorn. Remember, Paul had an ex- expanded times of prayer asking God to take away that circumstance, that situation in his life, and God did not. 
Paul learned some of those glorious truths that the Holy Spirit allowed him to pen for us about God's grace being sufficient. That did not come without uh, thinking about the truths that God had given him and, and pondering them and chewing on them and rehearsing them and meditating them until he could finally get to the place to say, my grace is sufficient for thee. You can read that verse. You can read that verse and say, God's grace is sufficient for thee. But when it becomes a realization for you, it's my grace is is sufficient. You see the emphasis? Well, a meditation awakes us from sluggishness and lethargy, which is a danger to all of us. There's not a one under the sound of my voice that can't be a lethargic Christian. I've seen people who ought to know better begin to drag spiritually, who become sluggish in their zeal, not what it should be. When they have all the promises of God at their disposal, all of us are subject to that. What what is the difference? What gets us out of that? Well, meditation will cause us to, to uh, become strong and, 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 and chase away the, that sluggishness. Nathaniel Rainu said, Little meditating makes lean Christians of little life, little strength, little growth, and of little usefulness to others. God has left us here to be effective for Him, to be a voice for Him, to minister to others, but a person whose heart and mind is not stayed on the Lord is not going to be very effective in their counseling to other people. It'll just be empty words, trite little phrases. But a person who's drinking deep at the well of God's grace, pondering deeply the thoughts and the doctrines of God, will have deep resources from which to draw to help someone else along the way and to encourage them in their spiritual growth, or even in their witnessing of the gospel. The gospel will sound just bare and cold uh, and uh, just factual apart from a zealous heart warmed by thinking of Christ on Calvary. Is that not why he regularly tells us to uh, partake of the Lord's table? To remind us of those scriptures and those elements and what Christ has done for us to keep it real and vivid before our minds so that our hearts should be stirred and to, to tell others? Meditation upon God's Word increases our spiritual discernment. Don't we need that discernment? We live in a day where so much is going on and so much can move us from the, our, the simplicity that is in Christ. We need to be able to discern, to prove all things. What are you to prove it by? Some new teaching comes along, some, some situation. You prove it by God's Word. You run it through the test of God's Word. It whets our appetite to know and read more of the Scriptures. Again, Thomas Watson said, The devil is an enemy of meditation. He knows that meditation is a means to compose the heart and to bring us into generous frame. Satan is content that you should be a hearing and praying Christian so that you, not, so that you be not a, a meditating Christian. He can stand you, that, that you shall, your small shot, provided that you don't put, it in this, put in this bullet, referring to the bullet of meditation. The average modern-day believer seems to have a low opinion of meditation or no opinion at all. We're so filled with gadgets and things and books and all kinds of stuff, things to do, places to go, things to fill our hearts and minds, that meditation is almost a forgotten thing, almost like something that's not known, known about or no opinion of it at all, at all that it, it really must not be necessary. And one of the reasons is this is a real discipline. Have you noticed the finest graces, the finest, most precious treasures of Christian life are work. They cause some effort, 
True prayer, true meditation will cause effort on our part and discipline. The first psalm describes it as a major component of the spiritually blessed life. What sets that man apart from other believers? Blessed is the man. And that word blessed is in the plural. It means blessed, blessed, blessed. Or happy, happy, happy is the man who walks not, who stands not, or sits. But the reason he doesn't walk in the wrong direction or stand with the wrong people criticizing and carping or sit down among those who would uh, destroy the things of the Lord is that his mind and heart is stayed upon. He's delighting in something else. He has deeper delights, a deeper well to draw from, the well of God's word. Verse 3 describes him as one whose delight day and night is in the word of God, that that being the object of his regular thinking and meditation. Again, Edward Calamy says, now this want or lack of meditation is a sin. And that's a, a very stark thing to say, but until we view it that way, we'll never change our opinion about uh, our lack of participation in it. That I persuade myself that most Christians are guilty of, I cannot exclude myself, he writes, there are few Christians that are convinced of the necessity of this duty of divine meditation. Because of this, pastors such as James Usher counseled over 350 years ago to, to meditate. One hour spent thus, he says, is worth more than a thousand sermons. And this is no debasing of the word, but an honor to it. Thinking about the sermons that have been preached. You've all in this room have heard enough doctrine to meditate on to the rest of your life that you already know about. You've already had expounded and, and unpacked and laid before you. Today we have more Bibles, more Bible teaching, more Bible study aids, more books and broadcasts and CDs and blogs and apps and all manners of way to study and meditate on the Bible than any other generation before us. And we praise God for these things. But are we spiritually more advanced than our forefathers who had none of those things? Maybe some are, but I don't think the vast majority of the church is as mature or spiritual as the church a hundred years ago. It's not saying they were perfect people, that every one of them meditated any more than we do now. But it is the element, an element of, of their, their Christian duties that uh, is missing, I think, today. Meditation is given in the scripture to help us put what we know into real daily living. It's not just to meditate, to think and have sweet thoughts and have our soul warmed. I think sometimes people take away the idea, is, I think on these things as, as the words of a song and the, the way that it is or a psalm warms my heart. I can mention certain portions of scripture and they bring immediately comfort and, and warmth to our soul. But it's much more than that. It's not about just feeling good. It's not just about chasing away the blues. It is to translate doctrine into shoe leather. That's why James says true religion, pure religion and undefiled. And he goes to describe it as an active living out of the doctrine of salvation that we know that would take place in someone else's heart and life and need. So often we're so fixed on our problem, our lack, our unhappiness. I hear people saying, I'm not happy where I am in my marriage or in my church or in my work. What a disgrace. What a 
But because the Lord tells us through the Apostle Paul, whatever state I'm in, there would be content. And there was Paul in prison with no chance of getting out. And if he can rejoice in the Lord and delight in the Lord, why can't you and I rejoice where we are, where the Lord has bled us and where he's placed us? Shame on us for, for having that kind of attitude. In courtship, our hearts are knit to our beloved by spending time with them by talking with them, long walks and talks. And when separated, back in the day, 40 years ago, we wrote letters. And in the summers, my wife and I were separated, and we wrote daily to one another. We still have all those letters. We came across them the other day, and I said, what are we going to do with these? We certainly don't want the children to get a hold of them or the grandchildren to get a hold of them. What will they do? And she says, I fancy in my, uh, when I'm retired, a little old lady in a rocking chair, putting them in chronological order and that kind of thing. I said, and then what? For who? For what? So have you ever had something you've held on to and treasured all these years, and they represent something, but what do you do with it? And uh, we were joking about that. I, I think best served is to do away with them, but I, I figured that won't be my, my call to make. But those letters represent a lot of the hearts being separated but being drawn together by thinking of the one. Let me just put it this way. There's a lot of meditation written down in those letters, the expression of love and, and all the little sweet nothings back and forth. Thomas Watson again says, Without meditation, the truth of God will not stay with us. We hear it, but James says it's like looking in the mirror and you walk away and you forget what you look like. You hear a sermon, the Holy Spirit speaks to your heart and says, I need to attend to that. I need to think about that. I need to practice that. And then we walk out and get in the car and go and then we forget about it. Meditation causes us to take those notes that we've taken, to go back to the verse that the preacher referred to and read it and chew on it and pray over it and look up the words in the Greek and the Hebrew in Strong's Concordance and write them out and list some things about it, and personalize it. Do you see what, what the duty is of taking the, the preached word and the taught word and making it something that will stay with us? Without meditation, the word of God will not stay with us. The heart is hard, the memory slippery, and without meditation, all is lost. Meditation imprints and fastens a truth in the mind. As a hammer drives a nail to the head, so meditation drives a truth to the heart. Without meditation, the word preached may increase notion, but not affection. Richard Baxter had considered a Christian without meditation as a house that had no light because the, the windows were shut up and blocked and no light could come in. How, now you read over the whole chapters and, and, now, and hear the sermon after sermon he wrote, either they never stir you or, or at least it is but for a little fit, like a man that has warmed himself at the fire in the winter, and when he goes from the fire, he's colder than he was before. But if you would put, but set yourselves to consider of what you hear and read, one line of a chapter or one sentence of a sermon, would you lay in your tears or make you groan or at least do more than now is done, Satan hath garrisoned the heart of every carnal man, and consideration is the principal means to cast him out. Think of the success of godly Joshua. Think about Joshua's job description. Has anybody ever been given that job to do? Go in and possess the land. Lead these murmuring people into conquests. Take down these walled cities. How, Lord? How are we to accomplish that? God tells him. He gives him the prescription. Only be thou strong and a very courageous. 
Meditate on this word day and night. May it become a part of your heart. Henry Scudder argued that if a person did not meditate on the truth in his free time, he would be inevitably tempted to fall into sin. Have you thought about meditation as keeping you out from wrong and idle thoughts that would lead to sinful thoughts? Satan goes after idle minds. Scudder counseled, when you are alone, be sure that you are well and fully exercised about something that is good in holy meditation or in prayer. For whensoever Satan does find you idle, he will make, take that as an opportunity to use you for himself and to employ you in some of his works. Well, the reason so many shun this heavenly grace, as I've already alluded to, is because it's work. It's like the companion grace of prayer. It is, it is work. Watson wrote that, the, that why God has given us the word written and preached is not only to know it, but that we should meditate on it, that we should think about it. The scripture is God's love letter to us. We wouldn't get it. I mentioned those love letters. When I saw it in the, in, the, in the post office box, I knew who it was from. I didn't put it in my pocket and say, well, one of these days I'm going to get around to this. I'm sure I'd like. You know what we did? We tore into it, read every line, reread it, smelled it for the perfume, all the rest. God's Bible is, the word of God is a love letter to us. We don't run over it in haste, but we meditate upon it. The necessity of meditation appears because without it, we can never be godly Christians. A Christian without meditation is like a soldier without weapons or a workman without his tools. Without meditation, the truths we know will never affect our hearts, never change us, never sanctify us, never make us different than what we are right now. Without meditation, we make ourselves guilty of sliding God in his word because all we can know of God is what? What he's revealed to us in his word. Well, this is work to be done. It is a grace to employ. And the benefits are eternal. The dividends are, 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 cannot be counted. Bridge writes, as a soul-satisfying work, so this work of meditation is a gracious a soul, is a most delightful work. What greater delight than to think on that God in whom he does most delight? Though it be hard in the regard of its practice, yet it may be sweet and delightful in regard to its profit. It, is it not a hard work for a man to be digging into the mines, digging up silver, and yet delightful in regard of the profit of what he receives from that work? Well, if we're to benefit from this meditation, as the, the verse in Isaiah says, our, our hearts, and we sing about, must be stayed upon Jehovah, fixed glued upon Jehovah. We struggle with fixing our attention, don't we? All of us have trouble with that. Short attention spans. We have all kinds of uh, uh, descriptions of it in children, in school, and all the rest. But I see it just as much in grown spiritual adults. The task is troublesome, but we still must go for it. Anything worthwhile is worth putting forth the effort for the benefits from it. The specialness of that quiet, private time before the Lord. It's not just reading a verse. It's taking it apart. It's pondering it. It is thinking. It is praying over it. As a cow, you've heard, you've heard Psalm 1 described, I'm sure, as a cow. And I'm using that very analogy, regurgitating the, the cud that's been chewing, brings it back, chews on it again, and chews it, and chews it, and chews it. That's the picture of what meditation is over and over and over again until it becomes a part of our soul. 
It becomes a part of our thinking. So when the fiery dart comes, when the trial befalls us, when the wave of depression comes over us, those thoughts are there. We have a deep well to draw from. David, when he encouraged himself in the Lord, I doubt he had a copy of it on him as a soldier, as chasing after the enemy. I don't know, but we do know this. He had it hidden in his heart and his mind, and he could call it up. And he could bring to mind those precious promises. I will never leave you nor forsake you. Those, those words that will help us through those darkest hours. Well, may the Lord give us grace to put into practice what we've heard this night.